Glenn Hughes was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016, along with other members of Deep Purple. Well, at least Deep Purple Mark I, Deep Purple Mark II, and Deep Purple Mark III. Say that five times fast. When it was time for Hughes to give a speech, he began his remarks with a line that I've always thought was really understated and clever and sums up pretty accurately exactly who Glenn Hughes is. Here's that line. Hello, my name is Glenn Hughes, and I am so grateful to have been given the gift of music. I was born in the United Kingdom, but my soul was born in Detroit. Despite possessing the nickname, The Voice of Rock, Glenn Hughes is still underappreciated. As a child growing up, and I guess as a child growing into a teen and a young adult, I never really heard Glenn Hughes songs on the radio. Maybe you did, but I didn't. And that's despite him, obviously, as we've already stated, having a Hall of Fame career with Deep Purple. He was one of the founding members of the band Trapeze. He had a pretty successful run as part of Hughes' Thrall. He's had a solo career with several albums. And yes, he was the second former Deep Purple member to become the lead singer in Black Sabbath. Granted, it was for the should-have-been Tony Iommi solo album, Seventh Star. But, hey, I guess it counts. And he's done other records with Glenn Hughes. And for some of my fellow podcasting friends on Twitter or whatever, I'm sorry, Seventh Star, at least the title track, is way better than anything that's on Born Again. I digress. This podcast, though, is not going to be about Glenn's career. I'm not really a Glenn Hughes historian any more than I'm a historian of anything else that I talk about. And there's several records, I'll be completely honest, that he's done, especially in his solo career, I've never listened to even once. This episode is about Glenn Hughes' career from 2010 through the end of 2019. Because I contend for that 10-year period, Glenn Hughes was Artist of the Decade. I'm John Pritchard, and this is Well Disguised. even call that decade i've looked it up and there's no consensus at least that i've been able to find it would be easier for naming this episode or maybe even starting out that introduction if i knew whether it was called the 2010s or the 20 teens i saw one article online calling it the teensies which just sounds awful to me whatever i am serious about my assertion though i really do think glenn hughes not only is he wildly underrated and under-talked about, if that's a word or phrase, but he had a really good run. Now, granted, a lot of it was with one particular band, and maybe those people deserve some credit for that too, but we'll get into that in a minute. Again, this is not going to be a history of Glenn Hughes, but just to get you up to speed in a bare minimum way, Glenn Hughes is a bass player. 
He's also a vocalist. He was born in Staffordshire, England, or as he said in his speech, in the United Kingdom in 1951. Despite a successful career, especially in the 1970s, and maybe some people would say, I don't know if this is entirely fair, partly because of a very successful career, Glenn Hughes developed a debilitating, notable, even by rock and roll standards, cocaine problem. But he eventually kicked that and has been sober now for two decades or so. Glenn is considered by almost everyone to be an excellent bass player. But the thing that is most notable about Glenn Hughes, again, obviously by that nickname, is the tremendous voice that he has. Now, I will concede, Glenn's voice rubs some people the wrong way. He really is rock's closest thing to Stevie Wonder. There's a soulful R&B tinge to his vocals that I like a lot, but I understand that some people don't necessarily care for. Glenn has always had that funky sign to his music, especially going back to Trapeze, but not everyone likes it, including arguably Richie Blackmore. It's probably not fair to say that Glenn Hughes is one of the main reasons that Blackmore left Deep Purple, but it's not completely unfair. Blackmore has talked about how much he liked the Burn album, the first Deep Purple Mark III record that featured Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale, but he did not like that second record, Stormbringer, so much because Glenn was bringing some of that more R&B funk to what Deep Purple was. In fact, Richie Blackmore is attributed to giving a really infamous racist quote about that type of music. You can even find it if you look up the term shoeshine music on the Urban Dictionary. Now, I'm not saying the Urban Dictionary is some sort of unassailable source. It's probably even worse than Wikipedia. But here is the entry for shoeshine music on the Urban Dictionary. A nickname for soul, funk, and blues music. The term was coined by Richie Blackmore when refusing to record music written by Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale in the Deep Purple Mark III lineup. And then the quote is from Glenn Hughes. It reads, He announced he was leaving prior to the tour because he didn't want to play any of this, quote, shoeshine music, end quote, he called it, that I wrote and David wrote. That's the line from the Urban Dictionary. Richie Blackmore gave an interview in 1993 where he kind of expounded on this. I'll let you listen to a little bit of it so you can draw your own conclusions. Uh, would you rather have seen that Glenn and David basically uh, just did, did what they were told? Um, no, not. Um, I wanted more from... David would quite often sit down, play the piano, and do some stuff. That was good. I liked his voice at the time. It's very good. Glenn was into a more of a, a, a bluesy thing. Not bluesy, but funky. Funky, funky yeah. They started getting very funky and black, and I was like, that's not for me. I really hate that type of music. Cool, kind of. This has got to be rock and roll. Or it has to be majestic medieval music, but not. I'm sorry, but I don't like particular most black music. I'm sure that'll cause a stir, but I don't care anyway. No, that's your priority. Um, and that bothered me, that this, why be impressed by Stevie Wonder? I didn't see it. So I left, I wanted to be European rock, majestic music that Europeans know. 
especially Swedish people. You have your Abbas and that's the and I can relate to the, the Germans. I cannot relate to American I don't like American musicians particularly. Although I live here, I'm not impressed with that black music syndrome. Mm -hmm. It means nothing to me. It's too cool. It's too it's too shallow. They say it's soul. I, I call it anything but soul. I suppose I would leave it to you to draw your own conclusions or opinions about what Richie Blackmore says in that interview. I think that I would say that you're entitled to like whatever you want to like. And that goes for music, it goes for people, it goes for books, whatever. If you don't like to date people with red hair, that's your prerogative. If you don't like to date people who are more than 300 pounds or people who are less than 300 pounds, that's on you. And if you don't like a certain style of music, that's perfectly acceptable as well, although maybe you should be pretty careful about what you call it and certainly don't call anything shoeshine music. Anyway, I bring all this up because in some weird way, what Richie said about Glenn is kind of what I like best about his output from 2010 to 2019. Glenn decided and said so in interviews, and by the way, he also thanked and, and was uh, praising of Richie Blackmore in that speech where he went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But Glenn kind of openly said, you know, I'm going to go into the rock space more. I'm going to leave some of that, the, the soulfulness behind and really buy into rock at this point in my life. And when he did, in my view, Glenn Hughes put out the best music of his career. And let's go to where that started. In 2009, Glenn Hughes jammed with Joe Bonamassa, the blues wonder kid guitarist. I guess he probably wasn't even a wonder kid anymore at that point. He was kind of the, the forerunner of a new blues music. A lot of people don't like Joe Bonamassa. A lot of people find Joe Bonamassa to be boring. But I don't think too many would contest that he really is an outstanding great guitar player. Glenn and Joe jammed at an event and it went well. And they decided to see if they couldn't write some songs and maybe turn this into something. And what resulted from all that was the supergroup Black Country Communion. Black Country Communion was finalized with Jason, son of John Bonham, on drums and Derek Sherinian on keyboards. Derek had played with Alice Cooper and Billy Idol and Dream Theater and was a respected musician on his own. These, this is really a supergroup. Glenn Hughes, Joe Bonamassa, Jason Bonham, Derek Sherinian. And as we know, supergroups usually don't work. There's a few occasions where they do, but a lot of times it's just some guys who get together, they pound out an album or two, they hardly ever tour it. It's not very memorable. It's one of those things that the total is usually less than the sum of the parts. But Black Country Communion was different. Black Country Communion was hailed by almost everyone who heard them when they came out with their first record, self-titled, in 2010, as being, this is the new wave of classic rock. This really is going back to Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and that sound and bringing it forward for a new generation. Critics really loved the Black Country Communion. They were considered by many to be the best new rock band of 2010. There was a lot of momentum behind them. But the band only played live a couple times, and that's really due to Joe Bonamassa and his solo career. 
I've never seen Jonah Bonamassa live. I would like to. He tours a lot, and he comes to places that are near where I live. They're always really expensive, though. He plays theaters or maybe small arenas. Uh, I don't even know if arena is the right right side. Maybe auditorium. Places where you can sell around 3,000 tickets. And the price is always at a premium. 80 bucks, 100 bucks, $120. That's what it costs to see Joe Bonamassa. And even with these other musicians, the demand for seeing Black Country Communion was not really substantially any greater than just seeing Joe solo. So it's not really in Joe's interest to go on tour and start splitting four ways what he could basically get pretty close to by himself. So Black Country Communion did not get off the ground, at least there initially, as a big touring band, as something that you could go see live, as much as Glenn Hughes really wanted that. I think Glenn and a lot of us believed that Black Country Communion, with the right push and with the right buy-in from all members, could have been a monster. But even if they did not become a commercial monster off that first record, it really was a great artistic achievement. If you have any love for what we call classic rock music, and you've never checked out Black Country Communion, you absolutely should. Here's a little sample off that debut album as the first building block in the reason why I think Glenn Hughes had the best decade out of anybody in the 2010s. I suspect a lot of people think that Black Country Communion peaked after that first record, and I encourage you to go check out every record I'm going to talk about today because I think they're all outstanding. But I actually think their best record was the next one, Black Country Communion 2. Not the Roman numeral 2, just the regular, not trying to be fancy, Arabic number 2. Black Country Communion 2 came out essentially one year after the self-titled debut and to me, it's an even better record. As he would usually do on these records, Joe Bonamassa takes the lead vocals away from Glenn a couple times on each record, including the tremendous The Battle for Hadrian's Wall. As good as the Battle for Hadrian's Wall is, it's one of only two co-writing credits that Joe Bonamassa has on Black Country Communion 2. Jason Bonham has a co-write credit with Hughes on the fourth track from the record called Save Me, but otherwise, everything else is a Glenn Hughes composition. In fact, the other Joe Bonamassa track is also a co-write with Glenn Hughes. And as good as the Battle for Hadrian's Wall is, and as great as this album is, I encourage you to check out all of it. The final track on the record, Cold, is my favorite song from the decade. And maybe more than that, Cold is absolutely tremendous. 
and it still takes my breath away. It's one of those songs that sometimes I don't even like to listen to because I just know how good it is, and it's kind of intimidating in a weird way. Here's a snippet of Cold. Man, just listening back to that, how tasteful was Jason Bonham's drumming? Anyway, BCC did actually tour behind Black Country Communion 2, at least a little bit. There's about a six-week, give or take, tour that they took on the album across Europe. They had Michael Schenker Group opening for them, and the album had a lot of success. The, the tour was successful. The critics were kind. They won some fan awards and seemed to have the type of momentum that any new band starting out would die for. But again, Joe Bonamassa is having to look at Black Country Communion as a business decision. This is not his career. He does not want to give up his solo career for this band, even though I think the other three members, especially Glenn, really want to push this and make it something big. Glenn Hughes wants this to finally be in his career, the group the project that he really wanted to you know stake his name behind and and this to be his thing i'm not saying that glenn wanted all the power although maybe reading between the lines some of the interviews that you read about this band you could see other members kind of saying that but you know glenn was in deep purple mark three and then mark four he was in black sabbath but he was fourth fifth lead singer Trapeze was never that big successful band that I think Glenn probably wanted it to be, even though he said later that he wished he had never left Trapeze. Glenn is a great solo artist, but he wants to be in a band, and he wanted Black Country Communion to be his band, the band. And I think he and Jason Bonham and and Derek Sheeran, they thought that was the band, but it just didn't give Joe Bonamassa what he needed, either artistically or and or I suppose to be fair financially. Black Country Communion 2 was followed by a live record and companion live DVD slash Blu-ray that highlighted some of the songs from the tour the band had undertaken. For the next record from Black Country Communion that came out in 2012 called Afterglow, Joe Bonamassa really needed to put his attentions elsewhere. He does not have a single co-write credit on any of the tracks that appear on Afterglow. In fact, they're all Glenn Hughes compositions, except for two co-writes with Jason Bonham. Afterglow's none as good as the first two Black Country Communion records, but it's still really good, and it's still a step forward. Perhaps you can attribute that to the passion that Glenn Hughes puts into this record, both the songwriting and the lyrical content, and obviously also the performance. There were leaks that came out that There was certainly tension in the camp. They actually had a a tour date planned for 2013, but Joe Bonamassa pulled out. 
and the vibe behind the record, which Glenn Hughes freely admitted in interviews at the time, was that this may be the last Black Country Communion record. This would be it. So while he had Joe committed to playing on the record, if not to writing any songs and if not to performing live, Glenn seemed to want, if this was going to be it, he was going to make it as good a record as he could. Here's a little sample from Afterglow. Afterglow is really good, but at the end of it, Joe Bonamassa and Glenn Hughes are kind of loggerheads. For Joe, he's a solo artist. Job number one is Joe Bonamassa the artist. And then after his solo career, he's got lots of projects. And Black Country Communion, he was more than happy to be one of those, where he was the lead guitar player and occasional, very infrequent actually, lead singer of a classic rock band. But that was again just one of the side projects that Joe wanted to deal with. For Glenn though, he wanted to go for it. Black Country Communion was going to be his band, his maybe his last shot at the big time again. He wanted to tour, he wanted to make records, he wanted to be a member of a group that was going for it, and that was just never gonna happen. And tensions were probably at their highest after Afterglow. So what did Glenn do? Well, something very similar to what happened in Black Country Communion. Glenn's next project was called California Breed. And see if this sounds familiar. The drummer in California Breed was Jason Bonham. And on guitar was a hotshot young guitar player. Now, I understand that earlier in the episode, I believe I called Joe Bonamassa a wonder kid. And once upon a time, that was an accurate depiction of Joe Bonamassa. He became famous and gigging at a very young age, but Joe Bonamassa is probably not a, more than a couple years younger than me, really, at this point. And even when he started with Black Country Communion, he was clearly a man and accomplished guitar player in his own right then, even with a slightly younger looking face. But in California Breed, he really did go even younger this time, a 23-year-old guitar player named Andrew Watt. And Andrew Watt's presence in Glenn Hughes' life and on California Breed actually makes this probably one of the more interesting albums to talk about in this whole series. Because, again, Glenn's probably about 62. He's got almost 40 years on Andrew Watt. They were introduced by Julian, son of John Lennon. They started trading music back and forth and were both taken by each other and thought that this is something that's great. We got to work on this. And of course, they eventually get an album out of it. All the songs on California Breed's self-titled album are credited equally to Glenn Hughes, Andrew Watt, and Jason Bonham. There's no keyboard player this time. They keep it as a power trio. And while I prefer the Black Country Communion band to California Breed, 
there is something to having this young hotshot, not blues background guitar player in it. There is something a little old-fashioned about Black Country Communion. There is something a little grand and more majestic, I guess, in a way, in how they approach songs. It's, it's more of a classic rock kind of band. California Breed, though, is maybe just a little less stately, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's, a, it's a younger, more vibrant sound, and I guess I chalk most of that up. A, they don't have keyboards, and B, because that's what Andrew Watt brought to the band. Now I want to jump at this point to the end of California Breed because it didn't last very long. After they get the album in the can, ready to come out, they're ready to go on tour to promote it, and Jason Bonham basically says, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go on the road. I don't want to be promoting California Breed anymore. I'm bowing out. So Glenn and Andrew get a replacement drummer and they play a tour in Europe opening for Alter Bridge. They play some dates opening for Slash. But early 2015, they put out an announcement, we're done with California Breed, we're not going to be able to continue, we're going to go our separate ways. Fair enough, I suppose. Now I suppose the average well-disguised listener, well, I don't really know what the average well-disguised listener would look like or sound like or think like or anything else. But I'm guessing you fall into one of three camps when it comes to Andrew Watt. Most of you probably have no idea who Andrew Watt is and you think you're hearing his name today for the first time. Some of you may recognize the name or think that you recognize the name, but you can't exactly place it or maybe just a little bit. And then there's a third group of you that I suspect, again, is pretty small, who knows exactly who Andrew Watt is. Well, that's where this gets kind of interesting because Andrew Watt has been really successful since California Breed. California Breed's the first thing he really ever did. It's what shows up first in his Wikipedia entry. Now Andrew Watt is so successful that sometimes, at least, he doesn't even go by Andrew anymore. He's just Watt. But here's a clip I want you to listen to of an example where he did go by the name Andrew Watt. And the Grammy goes to Andrew Watt. That's right. Earlier in March of this year, Andrew Watt won the Grammy for Best Producer, Non-Classical Category. If you're in that category of well-disguised listener who thought the name Andrew Watt might ring a bell, it's probably because he was the producer for Ozzy Osbourne's Ordinary Man record. But he also did some actually bigger, more successful records, including for Post Malone, Miley Cyrus, Dua Lipa, Justin Bieber, Five Seconds of Summer, and on and on. He's a big shot now. He just is. And if you're one of those people who thinks, maybe I have heard of Andrew Watt, but I don't think it was from Ozzy or anything else. Well, it's also perhaps because he was in the tabloids and the gossip rags because his ex-girlfriend was another artist that he's worked for. You may have heard of her, or if you have kids of a certain age, they may have heard of her. Of course, I'm talking about Rita Orr. Now, I've heard of Rita Orr. I haven't heard of his current girlfriend, which I only found out because I was Googling Andrew Watt as part of my preparation and homework for the show. But he's dating someone named Charlotte Lawrence, who apparently is a popular young singer. I don't know. Anyway, Watt was obviously able to make it work with all these other artists, but for whatever reason, it just did not work with Glenn Hughes. Glenn actually gave an interview back in 2018 with the podcast White Line Fever. So, hey, props to those guys. White Line Fever is one of my favorite Motorhead songs. In any event, they interviewed Glenn Hughes, and while he did not name Andrew Watt by name, 
it was clear who he was probably talking about when he said, the way I see it is this, and this is a generalization. Millennials want all the power and all the money of people that have already got it without working for it. I'm sorry, that's the way I see it. That's the way I see it in this world. Later on, he said, I'm old school. I've had a heart attack. I've been shot at, pistol whipped, run over with a car. I've been stabbed. And all of a sudden, I'm working with people that have no idea what I've been through, and they just want success. And success, you just don't get it overnight. So that's Glenn's perspective, at least. And again, I'm not casting aspersions. I have no idea one way or the other. But maybe, again, this is another group that's kind of fallen apart, but hasn't gone exactly the way Glenn wanted it to go. Maybe that's just bad luck. Maybe that's because Glenn is somewhat difficult to work with. That doesn't seem to be what other people would say. And certainly Glenn has been in bands with huge talents. He's been in with Tony Iommi. He's been in with Richie Blackmore. If you can deal with Blackmore and Iommi, I think you would be able to deal with a young Andrew Watt and Joe Bonamassa. But for whatever reason, these projects just kind of petered out at this point. It doesn't mean that California Breed, again, is not a great record. Here's a little sample of the fifth track, All Falls Down. Four albums into the decade at this point, perhaps understandably, Glenn Hughes says, to heck with it, I'm making a solo album. Again, he's had lots of solo records, I think 11 or 12 at this point in his career. But Glenn has talked about how he wants to be a band guy. He, he wants to be the member of a band. He likes that. But again, maybe understandably after how Black Country Communion and California Breed worked out, Glenn decided to release a solo album. 2016's Resonate, and Resonate is the album of that year. I said it then, I still believe it to this day. Resonate is one of the best records of the decade, bar none. And what's perhaps even a little more surprising is that it's a heavy record. It's heavier than any of these others, maybe as heavy as anything he's ever done outside when he's working with Tony Iommi. Resonate is Glenn Hughes still being a rock star, this is a heavy record, and it's Glenn really leaning into the bass and seemingly kind of getting stuff off his chest. Listen to the sturm und drang of the bass line on the third track from Resonate called Flow, and also the passion with which Glenn is singing.
on Resonate's 12 songs, there's one or two slower moments, but most of them are bangers like that. Glenn really laying into it, giving everything he's got. One of those exceptions is the very last song on the album, and I kind of like it, even though it's not normally the kind of thing that I like, because it's almost like Glenn, for the first time in almost a decade, is giving you a little of that Stevie Wonder thing. And it's like literally with one minute left on the album that this moment comes. But here's just a tiny snippet from Nothing's the Same. God almighty, I love Glenn Hughes. Man, what a voice. I get goosebumps on my arm just listening to that. What a talent. Interesting or not, nothing's the same. That 12th song, and actually a bonus track, I have it on my CD copy, was the only song that was not written only by Glenn Hughes. Glenn wrote that track also with the legend Gary Moore. Unsurprisingly, if unfairly, Resonate didn't really bother the charts, and you can't be shocked by that. Glenn Hughes at this point is in his mid-60s. He's released a heavy rock album, which is not exactly the music of choice, I suppose, for people wanting to bother the Billboard charts in 2016. But at least 2016 was that year, going back to the very top of the episode, where Glenn got some long overdue recognition when Deep Purple went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When Resonate did not streak across the sky like a star, Glenn went on playing live and began playing the Deep Purple classics that he had made famous and had a very successful almost three-year run playing Deep Purple hits to admiring audiences all over the world, although unfortunately not in Asheville, North Carolina. But I digress. In between all that Deep Purple-related touring, however, Glenn appeared on one more studio album in the decade. And it's a big one. BCC4. That's right. The thaw between Joe and Glenn culminated in the fourth Black Country Communion album released in 2017. The album cover imagery is unmistakable. Afterglow's cover featured a dark setting, several birds, crows, ravens, all featureless in black. But BCC4 is maybe a raven or a crow, but what it really is is a phoenix, all fiery and rising from the dead. And so was Black Country Communion. Now, Jason Bonham and Derek Sherinian were left out. All the songs were written by Joe Bonamassa and Glenn Hughes. And there may be some lingering hard feelings there. They were a little, I don't want to say snippy, but just slightly peeved comments from Bonamassa and Sherinian from the press releases and interviews at the time. Still, they played on it. And why wouldn't they? It's a tremendous record.
That was from the BCC4, and this time with the Roman numeral, so I guess they got a little fancy there at the end. But again, that was the second track off BCC4, Over My Head. This episode should come out August 10th of 2021. On August 21st of 2021, Glenn Hughes will turn 70 years old. Even if you disagree with my assertion that he was the artist of the last decade, at least when it comes to to rock and roll, and I'm anxious to hear who you think had a better 10 years than Glenn did, you can't dispute that he's having a remarkable late career purple patch, if you'll pardon the pun. Glenn is now touring and making records with the Dead Daisies, yet another sort of super group, although at least this time he's not getting in on the ground floor. And reports are that the Black Country Communion will be back again, releasing another record sometime, hopefully, in the next year or so. I can't wait to hear it. May the voice of rock keep singing for many years to come. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening, as always. It's not like a ton of people listen to the show, but enough people do that it is kind of overwhelming. And I, I people on Twitter say nice things and let me in with other podcasts that they enjoy. And I always appreciate that. That's really cool. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you're just listening to it, you're supporting it. It's not like I'm asking you for money or anything. But even if it's just a little bit of your time on your commute or at your workout or at your desk or whatever, it's so it's just it's just so neat that anybody listens to it. That's really great. I know the episodes are getting a little longer. I hope that's okay. I'm stretching out just a little bit, but I don't know. We're going to be close to right under 40 minutes on this one, if I can finish up talking. If you care what I've been listening to, I've been checking out Absurd, the new Guns N' Roses track, which is not really all that new, but it's what was once called by the community Silkworms. It's it's okay, right? It's it's not great. It's probably not what everybody wants, but I do like when the rhythm part chugs there. Uh, That's pretty cool. I've also been listening to Rex Brown. I was never into Pantera. I've never really liked Pantera all that much. But their longtime bass player had a solo record in 2017 called Smoke on This. There's a real evocative title for you. But it's awesome. It's a really great record. If I was any kind of musician, this is the kind of record I'd want to make. So if you haven't heard, look, it's new to me. I'm not saying it's new. Again, it came out four years ago. But it's new to me. I'm just now finding out about it. And I'm digging it and have it on repeat. Again, that's Rex Brown. Smoke on this. It's his only solo record. Hey, Rex, put out some more. All right, guys. Thanks again. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And I'll talk to you soon.